Uh, well, a, a few months ago, I think it was in June, uh, Dr. Sokol joined us uh, as dean of the Lander College for Men. We were discussing uh, different aspects of Lander College and the uh, Turo, and, uh, which is a division, of course, of Turo College. And um, we said at that time that we would set aside time to bring him back to discuss uh, the book entitled The Snake at the Mouth of the Cave, Exploring Talmudic Narratives. Right? Dr. Moshe Sokol's book is um, a Magid Books production, magidbooks.com. That's two Gs, magidbooks.com. And, of course, that is part of our um, uh, op- uh, uh, as part of the our friends' operation over at Koran Publications in Jerusalem. Uh, Roy, Dr. Moshe Sokol is dean of the Lander College for Men, a division of Toro College, and rabbi of the Yav Dominion of Flatbush. That's why he was so. That's why he is so dear to us because of uh, the relationship he had with our wonderful late friend, Mayor Weingarten. Um, uh, rabbi Sokol, as we said, is um, uh, the dean of Lander, and at the very beginning of the book, Toro College and University System pays tribute in a beautiful one-page tribute to Rabbi Dr. Moshe Sokol an outstanding Rav scholar and academician who is respected by his peers and beloved by his students, and he is the author of The Snake at the Mouth of the Cave. Uh, Dr. Sokol, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. And it's a pleasure to be here as well. I appreciate it. Good to that. rekindle old relationships. <laughs> to say the least. And uh, and we are connected forever, Baruch Hashem, and I'm happy about that. Uh, why the title? From whence does the title come? The Snake at the Mouth of the Cave. Well, part of the answer is so that you would ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> I like to provoke people. Hey, where does that title come from? And maybe I better take a look at that book. So the title actually comes, it, it, there's a, a two-part answer to the question. The title comes from one of the chapters in the book, um, which uh, describes a, a very puzzling encounter between Rav Yochanan, the great Amora, and Rav Kahana. Um, uh, Rav Yochanan thought that Rav Kahana had smirked at him. He was very upset. Rav Kahana subsequently dies. It turns out, as Talmudim tell Rav Yochanan, it turns out that it wasn't a smirk, but Rav Kahana had a defect on his lip. Uh, of course, Rav Yochanan was very upset about this, and he went to ask Mechila forgiveness from Rav Kahana at the cave in which he was buried. Well, it turns out that there was a snake coiled around the mouth of the cave, uh, which refused him entree into the cave until he said the right code. And uh, the chapter discusses what that code is and what the significance is. Uh, so it's drawn from that, and I hope it's uh, an arresting title, but it also has for me a double entendre in that um, just as Yochanan needed to, in order to penetrate the deep subterranean cave in which Kahana was buried, he needed to know the code. All of us who learn Agadita struggle to enter into the deep, mysterious, cavernous, hidden meanings of the Agadita, and we're looking for code or codes to get in there. So at one level, the book is my modest attempt to provide one possible code for exploring the infinite depths and riches of Agadita. You know, um, and, and, and for many people in this audience, obviously, we, we have to explain what that means, and, and the book is, is so scholarly and amazing. I hope he, I hope people will pick it up and uh, and understand that they'll need to go through it once or twice to just to make sure that they understand exactly where you're coming from with the different stories that you uh, that you cite. But let's start with that. Agadita. What would be the best translation? And how would you explain? And again, I'm somebody who went through the yeshiva system, so I have my own angle on this. How would you explain to the average person the way Agadita has been portrayed? 
in the annals of Jewish scholarship? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> so, for starters, there's the Talmud, the Gemara. Um, folks who are Tamidi Chachamim, who are Bikim Bishas, who really know Shas, I've heard this from several people, estimate that about 30% of Shas is Agadita. Uh, we tend to think of Shas as halacha and discussions about various manifold halachic topics, but about 30% deals with Agadita, so it's really important. And the, and, and the best translation into English of the word Agadita would be? For <clears throat> right, so uh, that, I'm coming to that. I'm and sorry. Yes. <laughs> often translated as legends, although I don't think that's true. I would say it would be the non-halachic portions of the Gemara, which include narratives or stories, which this book focuses on. Uh, but it includes uh, hashkafa, you know, idea, Jewish ideas, Jewish values, Jewish uh, ethical teachings that are not, you know, halachic or legal in nature. Um, it includes various uh, interpretations of psukim, which are not halachic in nature, but sometimes, uh, you know, uh, very, very expansive in their way of looking at uh, the text of the Torah of Tanakh. So it's, you might say, all the, probably the easiest way to define it would be all the non-halachic portions of, right. the, of the Gemara. Include, it can include medical, you know, medical teachings, teachings about health, general advice, all kinds of... I mean, they've got... The right. Gemara is infinitely rich. And, and before... This is a non-hal- non-halachic portion And of before it. you address how it's portrayed in our scholarship's history, we, we should also mention that it is, it is viewed so significantly, or maybe I should say it differently, it is viewed as such a, as such a um, uh, an important separate section, if you will, or separate area of Talmud, that there actually have been many svarim in many languages written just on Agadita, meaning to to bring, to to uh, underscore the importance of just those sections of the Talmud. Right. So those sections often speak to us as human beings and speak to us with our human aspirations, our foibles, our attempt to become better, our right. attempt to become spiritually closer to God. So these are all, the Agaritas often, not all of them, but often resonate with us as human beings and as questing Jews in our, in our attempt to grow and develop a relationship with Hashem and with other human beings. Right. So they, they have a very profound impact in ways that the pure halachic material, which is incredibly important and is the, you know, the basis of Judaism in many ways, but it doesn't, it doesn't speak in the same way. So Agadot has, has a certain power uh, to it. Now, um, the classical commenta- commentators on the Gemara, notably Rashi, always commented on Agadot, just like he commented on every other portion of the Gemara and all, and the Gaonim, which goes back to the early medieval period, uh, and Rishonim, the middle and late medieval periods, the Achronim, later commentaries, many of them wrote on the Talmud, and they also, inter alia, wrote on uh, the agadic portions of the of the Gemara. There is a sefer called Ein Yaakov, which right. many of your listeners may be familiar with, right. um, which is a compendium of commentaries on Agadita, and the author uh, went through Shas and selected out the agadic portions of Shas, of the Talmud, and he 
gathered together various commentaries, so that's a very, very important work as well. The Marsha is extremely well known for his Fiducia Agados, for his commentary on the Agadita. And over the years, there have been Maral, you know, wrote an, an, an immensely important, highly creative, voluminous commentary on Agadita. So there is a literature, an interpretive literature from our classical commentaries over the years. Um, however, I think it's fair to say that relative to the halachic portions of the Gemara, it's understudied. <clears throat> By that I mean that if you took a, if you went to the Jewish National University Library in Israel, and you managed to get a pile, gather together a two piles, one pile of all of the material that's halachic in nature, which goes back to the Gemara, and all the material of a non-halachic nature, and you'll find that the halachic material would be massively out, outsize the non-halachic material, right. because we are a halacha, as Professor Isidore Tversky put it, a halachocentric people. We are focused on halacha, and those portions uh, of the Gemara that deal with halacha are of paramount importance. However, the Agada to 30% of Shas. 30% of the Talmud. That's a lot. So yeah. it's obviously very, very important. And if someone... And in the English, which is where I'm coming to right now, right. there is definitely uh, a paucity of material. Not that there's no material, but there is a paucity of material that focuses exclusively on Agarita. Um There is a growing uh, universe of, uh, of academic scholarship in English on Agarita, Um And that is of considerable interest. I draw upon it myself. Uh, the authors are write in an academic mode. So right. they write uh, in a kind of a distance from what they're writing about, as an ac- academic should write. Um, and they operate with certain academic presuppositions that not all orthodox, orthodox readers, for example, would be comfortable with. Right. What I try to do in this book is I draw upon academic scholarship, but I write, I wrote the book in ways that are deeply meaningful to me. In other words, um, I I did not distance myself as a typical academic might, even if I draw from academic sources. Understood. uh, The the book, I got it to these stories, and I only focus exclusively on narratives, only on stories. I have another book coming up, which is, you know, additional material, um, but it's only focused on stories, and um, I, I, I try to read the stories with, intricate care, the same way my rabbeim taught me in yeshiva to read all the Gemara with intricate care. Why does it use this word? Why does it say this? Why do they do this? Why do they ask this? Why don't they ask this? It's a part of the methodology that one learns in the yeshiva system, if one spends many years there. I try to apply that methodology, which is not frequently done, uh, to the, these agadic materials, to these stories, these narratives, very, read them with a very, very considerable care, raising all kinds of questions, and I write in a very dialogical manner, because in many ways the chapters in this book are based on classes that I gave. So you engage, and you right. ask questions, answers, questions, and you try to come up with an account or a theory for what's going on in this often mysterious and sometimes troubling story that the Gemara chose to tell us. The, uh, so there isn't that much material, very little, but just a little bit, but not a lot of material in English that would that does that kind of uh, job. The Magid Books release is The Snake at the Mouth of the Cave, Exploring Talmudic Narratives, or by Dr. Moshe Sokol's with us live via telephone. Now, if I understood your intro correctly, um, you chose in this regard, these eight stories, eight narratives, eight chapters were chosen specifically, and, and again, tell me if I have this right, because you feel that these eight are... I, I don't know if this is the right way of putting it, history-changing narratives or 
uh, stories that took place that have had an influence on the aftermath of those stories in Jewish history for hundreds, if not at this point, almost thousands of years. W- w- would that be accurate? You cho- you chose you chose Jewish life life changing events. Um, that's true. I-, I can't say that was my conscious choice. Uh, I-, I mean, just the way it evolved is that over many years, I give shiurim in my shul, and we. Came upon Gemaras, which had some of these stories, so I taught them in depth, like I try to do my best to teach everything else I do. Then, subsequently, I began a series of shiurim at Lander, which we call Agada to Be'ian. Um, so, <laughs> some would say that's a dichotomy we're not used to in the yeshiva world. Agada to Be'ian. So I taught some, and then eventually it coalesced, uh, some of the chapters coalesced into a book. Partially, it's because uh, they de facto form intellectual biographies of two of the greatest gedolim who ever lived, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yochanan, two great, great, great Talmudic sages, one earlier, one later. Um, so I came to see, look, here is a, if we put these together, we have a portrait of the growth and development right. and challenges that these great, great Jews faced. Th- that, that, that moved and, history in a certain direction, right? They, correct. A, right. Yeah, they Got did. It. Rabbi Eliezer certainly did. Rabbi Yochanan, right. Rabbi Yochanan was the right. uh, is traditionally thought to be the compiler of Talmud Yerushalmi, right. which is obviously a major work, so it's very, very important. But what I want to stress is that these stories are, are just gripping. I mean, if you read them, they're just fascinating in the struggles that these great people underwent. And this is the theme of the book. The theme of the book is that people like Gedolim, great people like Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Eliezer and many other um, authorities in the Gemara, were men of deep principle. I mean, they had very, very strong principles about what constitutes Torah study, what constitutes Torah truth, how do you devote your life to the study of Torah. And they were ready uh, to defend those principles, e- even if it meant at, excommunication. Exactly, at great, great personal cost. And this, the book overall looks at the question of what are the costs of living a very principled life? Because... We believe in the importance of principles. We want our life to be guided by ultimate values. But sometimes doing that comes at enormous personal cost or interrelationship cost or human cost. And how, how does a person's growth and development over time influence the way in which he carries out and lives his principles? Because these were human beings. They were great human beings, but they were human beings. And we can learn from them precisely because they were great human beings and not not angels. But at one point I want to stress that this here, which is very important to me, which is that at the end of the day I make no claims whatsoever about what Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Yochan would truly like. Right. None of us living in the 21st century, myself especially, you know, who I am, how can I begin to imagine what Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Yochanan or Akavya ben Mahalalel or Choni Amahagel were really like? I can't. What I'm trying to do is interpret what these texts tell us about those great people. That's different. In other words, the authors of these Agatha who lived many centuries often after the protagonists of the Agatha, they had a view, and they were trying to teach me, Moshe Sokol, and all of the readers a lesson, something important, that important to them. I'm trying to unpack what lesson they were teaching us, recognizing that that, at the end of the day, we still can't get any real grip on the greatness and the you know of Rabbi Yochanan or or Reish Lakish or Rabbi Eliezer who lived millennia ago in a totally different world, whose religious heights were 
way beyond what we could even imagine. So I'm very modest in what I'm trying to do. I mean, it's an ambitious undertaking. I don't mean to say it isn't, but I'm modest in that I don't do psychobiography. I'm not trying to get into the what, what Rabbi Yochanan or Rish Lakush were really like. I can't know. But there's a Gemara here. And just like we learn any Gemara to try to understand it, we have to learn this Gemara and try to understand it too. And that's what I seek to do. Try to unpack and figure out the Gemara based on of course, the classical Mepharshim, but based on what we know about the history of the time, um, what we know about their origins, what we know about the ideas that were at that time, what we know about psychology, about human beings, all kinds of techniques I do my best, for better or for worse, to employ to figure out what's the Gemara teaching. And that is a basic I think, obligation that every Jew has to try to figure out what the Gemara is teaching. But the, these particular in these cases, these are incredible yeah. stories, incredible people. They're just gripping. They're does, fascinating. Does, you can't help but be interested. Does the inability uh, of yourself, as you acknowledge, and all of us to to truly understand, you know, these personalities and to understand what's going on all these, you know, centuries later, um, does does that? I mean, it has to it has to lend to a legitimate air of of um uh, of believability. In other words, one of the things that we and I'm not saying that this includes you and other uh, scholars and rabbis, but there are lay people out there that you know wonder if every detail of these stories in fact are true. I mean, Choni Amagel is obviously you know the the one I, I I would take from your book as the classic one. Should the believability factor have any role in analyzing these tales? Great question. Great question. And it, that question has been subject to debate for millennia. So you have two different schools of thought. You have uh, great commentators like Rashi who tend to take these things literally. Um, on the other hand, you have uh, great commentators like the Rambam or Maharal or others who don't take these stories literally. So I, I personally don't take any position on that subject. If you want to be a follower of Rashi, Gesundheit, yeah, right. can't get a better leader than Rashi if you want to take it literally. But it should, I but it shouldn't identify more with the rationalist school right. or the symbolist school. So the approach I take is more in that tradition. But I'm not telling people what to believe right. or not to believe. I'm but, just saying this is what works for me, and I'm following that great Masora of the Rambam, Rabbi Rambam, the Rambam, the Maral, and other great. Right, but but I search for a level where where the believability factor doesn't interfere with with the pursuit of understanding the story and learning its lessons. You know what I'm saying? Like that, the the frustration of not knowing if every detail is true really, I, I'm I'm giving myself Moser on this. Really, should not interfere. With, not at all. Right. I, you know, I, I spend so much time learning the and reviewing and working on the, this material. It doesn't it doesn't bother me one iota. Right. In other words, you, if you're the kind of person who's comfortable believing, you know, all sorts of supernatural things, because in fact, that's that's your way of that's your derech of avodas Hashem. They have many great right. uh, gedolim to follow. Personally, I am more identified with the other approach, which is the approach I take in my uh, in, in the book here, following in the footsteps of other greats. Understood. Okay. Yeah. Understood. Uh, I'm not preaching anything. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. Believe you me, I got it. Uh, the book is called The Snake at the Mouth of the Cave, Exploring Talmudic Narratives, and it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, we are highly recommending it. Check it out, magidbooks.com, M-A-G-G-I-D books.com, magidbooks.com, uh, Rabbi Dr. Moshe Sokol. Uh, by the way, how has the semester gotten underway over at Lander College? Great. Baruch Hashem. We had more students than we anticipated, than we projected. And the base medrash is humming, classes are full, and it's it's really going, given what was 
the universe in which we live really beyond my expectations. Yeah. We have a vaccine mandate, so all of the students who are on campus are vaccinated unless they get uh, either a medical or a religious exemption, which obviously some students have. But it's you know a reasonably safe environment. We do continue to do COVID testing. We have a COVID testing apparatus from our School of Pharmacy coming up next week. So we try to be very careful, but if you walk through the halls, given the fact that virtually everybody is vaccinated, faculty, staff, and students, it's, it's you feel like it's pre-COVID times, yeah, vir- uh, which is great. Virtually everybody is not virtual, which is a good feeling. <laughs> it, <laughs> exactly. It, well said. Very it's well said. It's, nice, exactly it's right. nice to be back on an active campus, wouldn't you say? Oh, it sure is. The place is hopping with excitement. The base medrash is humming. You know, there's energy in the hall, student activities, clubs, sports. It's just uh, you know, really intense learning. It's just uh, great to be back in that environment. We just hope we can continue with Hashem's help. Yeah, Hashem. <laughs> Dr. Soko, Mazaltov on the book, and uh, sorry to this long to uh, analyze it with you, but I'm glad we did, and uh, good luck during the year 5782 over at Dura. Now, there's a, there's an interview, I think, coming up. Were you supposed to talk about that on the 18th? Was that connected to this? I'm being interviewed as well by um, Rabbi Dr. Zev Elif, who's the president of Graz College, um, on Monday night at 8 o'clock uh, through Turo Talk. So if anybody who has access to that, you're invited to uh, kind of a more extensive and more elaborate conversation very, about the very same subject. Very cool. And knowing who you'll be speaking to, more academic as well. <laughs> so that's great. Bye bye. Well, one before you, before, you, before you hang up, just one little point. I wrote the book not for academics, although I hope right. academics will appreciate it. It's right. really written for a general audience. The response I've gotten. Oh, 100%. And Don't but, be intimidated. But, it's, not, it's not to be designed to be intimidated. Uh, I agree with you. The only And I 100% agree with you. I, I just found myself having to reread certain things that sometimes, uh, you know, it, it indicates to me that it's a, 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 and look, it's a high-level book, but it's certainly for the layperson, and I think a lot of people out there, especially those who follow along the Talmud, whether a Dafyomi system or otherwise, are going to appreciate it greatly. That's why we are highly recommending it. Dr. Sokol, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And thank you for having me. A pleasure. Speak to you again. Bye. I appreciate that. Thursday morning broadcast. More coming up at JM in the AM. (laughs) 